Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular belief the progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. We've seen a number of stories recently, from the Me Too movement to Windrush, that have pushed the equalities agenda to the forefront of the political conversation. But few issues have been as contentious as the debate on the reform of the Gender Recognition Act and the wider role of trans people in political and public life. I'm the Director of Progress, Richard Angel, and I'm joined by Progress Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd and Heather Pito, LGBT Labour's trans officer and candidate for Labour Party NEC. We're here to discuss trans rights and the next frontier of the equalities agenda. Before we get to some of the thorny and thoughtful issues around trans equality, it is obviously polling week and progress will be out on the doorstep campaigning for Labour candidates up and down the country trying to win important victories for our party. In particular, we're focusing on London, where we've got councils not only everywhere up for election, but it looks like Labour's going to win places we've never really won before. So Barnet, we've never had a majority Labour council previously, and it looks like that looks very possible up in North London. And then both Wanstead and Westminster could fall Labour. And if we're really lucky... Labour could take Kensington and Chelsea, where, of course, we won a Labour MP at the 2017 general election with a majority of just 22 votes. It's all to play for out there. The polls are in our favour. Labour's tails are up. Everyone's out campaigning across the country. And it's not just London where we could see victories for Labour. Trafford in Manchester could go Labour. We could win Amber Valley in the East Midlands. And North East Lincolnshire looks like a cert to turn red in these elections. Heather, I know you've been out campaigning not just to get yourself on the NEC, talking about the issues of Europe, uh, dealing with sexual harassment and making sure we have regional representation on the NEC, but you've been doing your fair share of campaigning. Have you, how have you found it? Yes, I mean, I've been campaigning mainly in uh, Derby and Abbott, Amber Valley in the East Midlands, uh, and there's been a fairly positive uh, response. Uh, I mean, I think uh, things are still coloured by the Brexit issue. So, uh, you know, we, we start off with local issues and then it seems to uh, deteriorate into, um, you know, Brexit, uh, which can be both positive and negative. Um, so in Derby, there's a big impact uh, if we leave the customs union on uh, companies that, such as Rolls-Royce and Bombardier and Toyota, who are all dependent upon the customs union for their supply chain. So in particular in Derby, a lot of people fear that their jobs are at risk. And that is becoming an issue in the local elections. And for that reason, Progress had on the back of the last magazine, we published Keir's six tests, one of which is that we get the benefits of the customs union and the single market in the deal that the Prime Minister comes back with. Because there are companies all around the country, not just the financiers in the City of London, but the manufacturers who are based out in the East Midlands, where obviously you campaign, Heather, that really are reliant on the products that move seamlessly currently between a factory in Germany through to something in the UK that then goes back out to Greece and then comes via Spain and is finally made in Sunderland, for example. And so this is really, really important. It's interesting that that's coming out. Are you getting people who are hardening their position for Brexit? There, there are a few people who are hardening their uh, views uh, towards Brexit in terms of they are still taking this view that uh, we must stop immigration. Uh, and so that is a fairly negative conversation that we have on the, the doorsteps. 
however, when you say sort of like uh, I, you're working alongside people that come from the European Union, they all say, oh, yes, but, you know, Fred over there is, is great to work with. I don't mean him. I just mean the others. Uh, that's that's often that's the a, case, isn't it? If you can get it off of immigrants and onto even a particular nationality or a route that people have come through or where you work with them or experience them. When I get immigration on the doorstep, the first thing I say to people is, how is that issue affecting you? Because suddenly you change the nature of the conversation. It goes from the hysteria of the Daily Mail through to, oh, well, they're my colleague or I just got treated in the NHS by somebody who's doesn't originate from the UK or whatever it might be. And it does mean you can have a, a nicer dialogue about it going forward. I and mean, sadly, these voters haven't read the previous edition of Progress that looked at the issues of controlling free movement uh, <laughs> while keeping in the single market, which I think is a failure of some of our politicians to not be able to talk about that solution going forward. But it's interesting you've had both of those experiences. Steph, I know you've been out in London more because obviously we're London-centric being living here and all. Living here and all, yeah. Uh, and, uh, have you found Brexit coming up on the doorstep? Um, I have. I, I definitely have. I think uh, maybe less so in London in the sense that uh, it's obviously a very kind of pro-European, particularly in lots of the areas that we're knocking on. Uh, lots of that's very pro-European. More people worried that we're leaving more than anything else. Um, but lots of lots of kind of more day-to-day uh, -day issues in terms of uh, housing, particularly um, as a big issue that's coming up, whether that's people who already own their own homes and want their children to be able to have access to that, um, or people uh, like myself that are totally priced out of the, out of the housing market. So Yeah, I, I've been kind of finding there's almost two issues in the London elections. There's a kind of competence issue and a culture issue. So if you live in Barnet, you've had a Tory council that's privatised everything to the nth degree. If you're in Wanstead, you've got council tax that's so low, which arguably people like, but they've got nothing to show for no council tax. There's no, there are no public services anymore. Westminster, it's a kind of middle ground, actually, I think, on that uh, position, but still a sense that the council's kind of running out of ideas and just kind of flogging a dead horse, if you will, on the delivery of public services locally. The second is a series of kind of um, culture issues are coming up. And it seems that there's a kind of conflation of the fact that the Tory government has got nothing good to say about itself and no reason to ask people to vote Tory. So surprisingly, I don't think people are going to go out and vote for them, which is obviously a good thing. You've got the, the, the cultural issues around being Remainers in a Remain city, and particularly you feel that. And one of the things I found is going out in some of the, the better off places in Wandsworth is they were very much identifying with Labour because of the Remain issue. But also, there seems to be a very long tail on the Zach Goldsmith campaign uh, against Sadiq Khan. Absolutely. And that will only have been made worse by the Windrush situation where the government has got him, itself by choice by policy decision of the previous Home Secretary, who has a new and quite important job, I forget what it is. Um, <laughs> Prime Minister. Oh, that one. Um, is there's a real cultural issue. And the Tories, I think, believed that they could divide and rule broadly amongst Asian and ethnic minority voters on being anti-Muslim, that they would therefore try and get the votes from other communities. And what that campaign showed is actually there was real solidarity across London. And I think there's a real interesting solidification of people who don't have to necessarily come from an Asian or ethnic minority background that see those three cultural issues conflating and are therefore going to back Labour. So I think this going, Thursday is going to be a really good night for Labour, particularly obviously in London. But you know the fact that a council like Trafford could go Labour, um, we're obviously hopeful about Amber Valley, uh, North East Lincolnshire, and there are obviously others around the country you know, suggest that at, while our tails are up and we're out with something positive to say, we're going to get the rewards for that. And that is a really good, uh, really good opportunity. While we've got you, Heather, I wanted to ask about one more thing. Oh, the, the, the team of candidates standing for the NEC have been campaigning to regionalise the NEC. So rather have a national block of nine people elected to make sure there is somebody from the East Midlands, the North East, Wales, etc. How have you found that been taken up by party members and activists across the country? Uh, so it's been very positive in the East Midlands. Actually going back, uh, this comes again to uh, a Brexit issue. Uh, the East Midlands and many uh, regions that are economically not as well off as uh, London and the South East, they were quite dependent and are still quite dependent upon the EU regional development funds. And, and we found our local governments have uh, been losing power because they've been losing money and so have less influence on uh, their local economies because uh, there's, you know, those are additional services, not uh, compulsory or statutory services that council has to provide. So um, 
by actually sort of saying to people within the East Midlands, look, come up with ideas of what you would want in a Labour manifesto regionally. So would we have a regional manifesto for the East Midlands? It's a possibility, but certainly something that we'd address in the National Manifesto has been very, very popular alongside, I have to say, my, my pro-European, let's not leave the EU, let's actually invest in the regions, uh, use the actual money that we'd not losing taxation by actually leaving the EU to actually invest in the regions and tackle people's underlying grievances. So you've not just found party members supporting the idea that we want to say over you know, what, what selections are happening in our area or, or by-elections that might come up, but also just they think they're going to get a more decentralised politics by yes. having a more decentralised set of voices on the NEC. Yes, I, I think this is actually something that Labour could... Um, uh, really benefit from an election actually having a regional manifesto certainly in areas whereby uh, we feel left behind because the east midlands does feel left behind the northeast does feel left behind uh, and if we can address our particular issues that we're coming up um, in the east midlands in a separate manifesto or as part of the broader manifesto targeting particularly those regions i think that would be very popular and people want that input Yeah, I think also, I think I totally agree with Heather in terms of the way that it will shape the politics of the Labour Party. Um, But also, I think it's a it's a basic democracy issue as well. It's the idea, you know, one of the fundamentals in terms of um, having a good democracy internally as a party is also being able to hold someone to account. So it's not just about being able to elect them and how you do that, but it's about the whole process of everything afterwards. And one of the biggest problems is when you've got a mass membership, which is a very good thing in the way that the Labour Party now does, how do you hold a how do you hold to account these nine people? Like, how do you have any meaningful interaction with lots of the membership if it's not done, you know, and the regionalisation way of doing it? You could go and report back at your regional conference. You, there you are so many different ways. You could probably go and visit, certainly in a two-year term, most CLPs in your region. There is no way, even if you had some kind of comradely way of divvying up the country as the block of nine, you couldn't go and visit everywhere in that sense. That's, that's not a feasible or possible no, and it's one of those things it. where it allows someone who has a real depth of understanding of the local area uh, and a real understanding and connection to that to be able to really be a representative of that area. And it also stops, it allows people to be able to run much more feasibly and not have to try and run and convince 600,000 people, but actually be able to to kind of run on an area and, and make that much more inclusive. So I'm going to bring that discussion to an end now and remind people that just after polling day is Progress Annual Conference, which is one of the best parts of our calendar as an organisation. We've got some absolutely brilliant speakers lined up uh, to be at that event. Obviously, Alistair Campbell is going to start off the day with what we think will be a tub-thumping speech for both the future of the Labour Party and our membership of uh, the European Union as a country. But we've got other great people from across the Labour family coming along. So if you haven't got your tickets yet, book them now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for memorial day get 15 percent off your burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25 percent off outdoor that's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. One of the many successes of the last Labour government was a pioneering piece of little-known legislation, the Gender Recognition Act. It allowed transgender people to have it recognised in their birth certificate, the gender of which they wish to live going forward in their lives. And it allowed them to do it in a way that gave a strong legal framework and at the time was seen as a real frontier for LGBT people in this country. And really the first time, I think, trans people had been properly recognised in UK law and it was much celebrated. But much time has passed and things move with it. There were some unintended consequences. In 2015-16, the Women and Equalities Committee did a transgender inquiry and it looked at some of the many issues that came up and it concluded that the government must bring forward proposals to update the Gender Recognition Act in line with the principles of gender self-declaration that have been developed in other jurisdictions. In recent years, we've seen that move forward in a whole number of countries around us, not least Ireland, which of course sits on our border, has a very similar legal structure to the UK. This has meant we've had a tsunami of discussion around trans equality, arguably by people in many cases who've been ill-informed about it, some people who have been trying to whip up hate, and some people who have rightly been trying to make the case for the need for change. I think it's an issue where emotions run high on all sides. Some people have been trying to have this debate as if it's on the Today programme, but conducted via Twitter. And it's been neither comradely or conducted in a constructive way. And there's been much abuse involved. But I think before we get into some of the very real issues that come up with the reality of the current law, the need for change and the consequences that might have, we should really reflect on where trans people find themselves in society now so visibility is higher we have trans idols in the country we're starting to go beyond the firsts and we're seeing paris lees appear on uh, mainstream media in a very proactive way fashion magazines are having trans women on the front page of their editions and it's becoming part of our national conversation in many ways in a positive way but it hasn't always been so heather i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you live in the world as a trans person and some of what that has meant for you in a very real way. Yes, well, I mean, being trans has improved significantly over the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, when I first transitioned, I'd be regularly beaten up uh, and quite severely about once a year on average. Uh, And I'm pleased to say that doesn't actually happen so much now. There used to be a lot of verbal abuse on the streets. Uh, People have by and large, a lot more tolerant now. And uh, so uh, lots of trans people have felt their, found their lives have improved a great deal, partly because the internet has actually allowed uh, people who were previously isolated to find other transgender people and get support online from mm-hmm. one another. But unfortunately, the internet has also a darker side. Um, we have uh, Twitter and we have uh, Facebook where you can have uh, trolls out there uh, who throw lots of abuse at transgender people. So that can make life very, very difficult. The workplaces in general have, by and large, improved uh, for transgender people. And the Gender Recognition Act has made a big difference. And so has the Equality Act, uh, preventing discrimination uh, or intentional dis- incrimi- discrimination against transgender people. And Stephanie Stonewall, the organisation set up following Margaret Thatcher's pernicious Section 28, started as an LGB organisation, but under its new chief executive, or she's not new in the role anymore, but the most recent chief executive has really taken on the trans issue. And I know they've done some research looking at some of the issues for trans people. Yeah, they have indeed. And I think some of the some of the statistics, and I think it's worth taking the time just to kind of sit and, and think about the reality of some of this and what this means. So when you look at some of them, so, you know, over 83% of trans young people have experienced name calling or verbal abuse. I don't think that will shock particularly many of us. But when you think that almost half of trans people in Britain have attempted suicide at least once. And 84% of people, of trans people, have thought about it. When you think of the scale of what that is, and, and this is the reality that of what... That is basically everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing, you know, you look at the fact that 
almost 70% of trans people avoid certain places or situations for fear of being abused, threatened or harassed. You know, more than 50% of trans people experience negative comments whilst they're at work. Um, one in four have been discriminated specifically against whilst they were at work. And it's one of those things where when you think of the statistics and how that works, you think of the verbal abuse, you think of the discrimination at work, you think of places that you won't go, people that you won't talk to. That is why you end up with the statistics at the end where it is that almost half of trans people in this country have attempted to take their own life. Like... That is the reality and the seriousness of the transphobia in this country and, and what it faces. I think that's useful, I think, for going into some of the wider conversations about to have. So let's take a step back. Let's start this process with the Gender Recognition Act. Heather, tell us a little bit about why that law came about. What was the pressing need for change at that time? So basically, you were always able since the 1970s to change things like your passport and your driving license to change it. To, to recognise the gender that you were living as, but you were not able to change your birth certificate. And that caused various le legal consequences, which we might come on to, but uh, difficulties over insurance, for example, but also difficulties over your privacy, because lots of trans people want to pass in the gender that they live in. And by passing, what I mean is that uh, people would not call them out for being transgender. They're happily living as a woman or happily living as a man. And all the people that they're associated with, uh, you know, just, just treat them as, as that. The trouble was that if you had a particular person, and you've seemed to have a lot of these around who, are, you know, really want to go stalker-like and investigate someone's past because they think, oh, that person might be trans, they were able to get hold of the birth certificate or the original birth registration and say, no, Heather was not always Heather. Heather was uh, whatever their previous name was, and that's called dead naming, uh, where your, your previous name and your previous gender and perhaps photographs were published of you. So the Gender Recognition Act was in part to actually help protect people's privacy. It was certainly there to uh, help change some of these legal ambiguities that you would have if you weren't able to change your birth certificate. So that I think that's a really important place to start, is that this was a piece of legislation that only covers, essentially, your birth certificate and what it says and how it says it. Because if you follow some of the debate that's come afterwards, you'd believe that it was much more wide ranging than that. So you alluded to some of the consequences of not having that uh, previously. For example, uh, insurance. Explain that to our listeners. Yes. OK, so to give an example, in, in 2001, I'd changed my passport uh, to recognise my uh, female gender. Uh, and that heard all my name and everything changed. Uh, when I came to fill in my insurance, then I was in a bit of a difficulty because uh, what do I put there? It's on the form, are you male or female? And I, I've crossed female because that was, you know, how I was living and uh, what I thought my official documentations were, were about. But it's been found that, uh, or it was found at the time, that certain people had their insurance invalidated because they were, although they might have passports that say they're female, their birth certificate says male. Uh, and uh, the the insurance company says, well, actually, sort of like you've you've filled it in wrong. You've actually, uh, in particular, when it came to things like uh, driving um, insurance, oh, you were trying to defraud us, and which uh, until very actually... recently was a very very different situation. Yeah. Yes, you know, you so paid you... very different if you were a man or a woman, for example. That that's right. So you could find yourself convicted of fraud, and you certainly would have your insurance invalidated. So, and of know, course, was it the truth? It was the other way around. So, had you put down mail in line with your birth certificate but your passport was out of sync with that yes precisely so um you you'd have that problem with both um whatever you'd actually write and the only way around it was to give an explanation in the uh you know anything else to declare sort of section of these uh, forms and you'd often find that you'd pay an additional premium because of it uh but not everyone you know knew that they would have to fill in those particular details um, and so found themselves un unintentionally um, subjected to, to fraud cases. Things that some of us never have to consider. Literally uh, ever. That suddenly do. So we've obviously fast forward. What have been some of the unintended consequences or just are the new realities of the Gender Recognition Act that people would want to change? 
Yeah, so I don't think the, there's been any unintended consequences. Uh, the trouble was the uh, Gender Recognition Act was uh, very pioneering at the time. It was a Labour government and it led the world in uh, recognising uh, people who should be able to change their gender on their birth certificate. But um, because of it was one of the first, it was a very lengthy process, very highly medicalised, very highly legal. Uh, you'd require lots of um, documents that, uh, to actually prove that you had transitioned and it'd take two years. And so you'd find yourself in that same legal, legal limbo that I was talking about for your insurance for at least two years before you apply, before you got your gender recognition certificate. Uh, and the gender recognition certificate is what changes your birth certificate, just to explain that. Um, so, so, so we're talking about things like it's quite expensive. So it costs hundreds of pounds to do the actual fee for the form, but then you had to go and get medical tests that you had to pay for each time, I believe. Uh, well, yes, certainly some sort of like medical tests you, you'd, you'd have to pay for. Um, but also just in terms of just waiting for an NHS appointment, that would take two years and then you'd have to wait for another six months after your first appointment before a doctor would actually sort of fill in the uh, form confirming that uh, you have uh, had gender dysphoria and you should be able to change your birth certificate. And that medicalised nature is one of the things that people come back to time and time again. So the fact that this concept of gender dysphoria suggests there's a kind of mental health implication for being trans which of course has stigma with it and suggests somehow well i mean yeah and it's also sort of like if we if we go back you wouldn't feel as if uh if you were gay bisexual or lesbian that you'd have to go to a doctor to have an approval of yes you are um, one of those uh, sexualities and yes it was always labeled previously um, a long time ago as a mental health issue and then people have realized actually no there's lots of people that uh, have you acquired this at birth or you know, might uh, realize your gender later on is uh, gender identity is different but there's nothing at all mental health um you're not unwell because you're not unwell uh you you might be unwell you might have mental health issues because the way that's transphobia though (laughs) yeah exactly the society treats you very badly but uh, not not for that that um not for the reason for being trans in the first place and i think other people in the lgbt community would relate to that very heavily wouldn't they absolutely and i think also you know one of the what i was just about to, to kind of say was as someone, particularly as you know, as a lesbian woman, when I go to the doctors and things like that, the experiences I often have are appalling. So, like the idea of you know what is meant to be something that is very mainstream in lots of ways of people's understanding of you know whether that it has be... certainly moved on more than trans issues has exactly. But that's my point is that. even though it has moved on that far in comparison to trans issues, it is still always a very negative experience when I go. So I can't even imagine how negative the experience can be when a trans person tries to go through that kind of medical pro- like process and system. Yes, I mean, certainly cer- certain GP practices, I think there was one area in particular, wouldn't actually uh, treat transgender people with their hormones, wouldn't prescribe them. And this is uh, called out in the um, Women's Inequality Report on uh, transgender um, in, in 2016. Surely that contravenes the Equality Act. Um, it probably does, but I mean, in terms of enforcement of it, I mean, wow. it, it, I mean, it's like everything. Because those Tories still haven't implemented various clauses of the Equality Act. Who knew? Yes. What a <laughs> yes. shocker. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's important to realise just because you have rights in, on paper doesn't mean that it's actually easy to enforce them. And if you've got to go through court cases, especially if you're feeling mentally vulnerable, and we don't have legal aid for most things now as mm-hmm. well, then it's uh, very difficult to enforce your actual rights. Also, like, imagine an entire, like, area of the country going, no, we're not going to hand out contraception anymore. Like, we're just not going to engage in that, no. We don't agree with that. Like, there would be an absolute outrage. Yeah. And so one of the other cases for reform has been to restore confidentiality. So I think you alluded to this previously, that one of the aspirations and the attempts of the original Gender Recognition Act was to provide some confidentiality for people. Explain to people... What, what, what was the aim and what was the reality? Yes, okay. So, I mean, perhaps a couple of examples. So before the Gender Recognition Act was passed, I was at uh, Cambridge University and I made a complaint of sexual harassment. And the university published in, or sent out a press release about my complaint saying that I was transgender. And I had no recourse to actually deal with the university over that, that particular issue. So the Gender Recognition Act in part was to sort of like say, look, 
your your gender is is confidential to you what what your original birth gender was assigned as is confidential to you and you should have various protections and the gender recognition act uh, put those in place but unfortunately that that meant for example you couldn't access the original birth certificate that meant that only a very few officials for very particular reasons could access those particular birth certificate original birth records but unfortunately um, no one foresaw in 2004 that uh, the internet would be so wonderful in so many ways you can look up your ancestral tree your family history but that also means that you can look up someone's uh, who's not related to you at all their actual birth original birth records and so what you do have at the moment is uh, some particularly nasty people around who feel it's their their duty to expose any trans person going around trying to find the original birth records and then publishing that online Uh, and it's totally negated that original basis of the uh, gender recognition act and that hopefully so a reformed act could try to tidy yes. that up in some so, way so tidy, and make it an offense i assume to to go and publish other people's data yes yes i mean but it's uh, malicious right nobody's doing it to be helpful it's not like they're like oh you lost this yes here it is again you may you yeah. may have forgotten yeah, yeah you may have forgotten it's it's malicious yes it is and i mean because i mean, even now although perhaps i glossed over it uh, um although a lot of people in especially sort of like liberal workplaces are fine and uh, liberal areas are fine with people being transgender there is a significant number of people who are quite nasty and, and most people would assume that cambridge university was at the liberal end of these things now, yes that well might, that might have been a while ago and things might have changed yeah. but you know well, Cambridge is thirty Sometimes good years. Get it wrong. Yeah. Well, Cambridge is thirty years ahead in terms of certain research and certain values, and thirty years behind in a porterhouse blue-like way uh, <laughs> on on certain issues. And it was that particular older group who were the uh, the difficulty there. I mean, the student union was brilliant, and uh, you know, many of my colleagues were brilliant. But uh, those, yeah. yeah. So that I mean, and to 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 just point out how damaging that is. Now, I'm quite happy to be out as transgender, but if I wasn't, okay, I might have wanted to actually restart my life elsewhere and was quite happily, you know, with other people. And then suddenly someone looks it up on the internet and says, oh, look, did you know uh, Heather was previously? And then, you know, gives out information about my transgender status. So I think, you know, it's, it's important for people's confidentiality to to be able to, you know, decide themselves if they want to tell people. Yeah, you should be able to own that situation. And one of the other things is that you can't get a gender recognition certificate until you are post-18. And so there's calls to bring that down to 16 or with parental consent to change that altogether. Yes, I mean, 18 was was chosen, but I mean, you get your driving license at 17. So, I mean, you know, people can recognise their own gender identity very early on, and there's lots of people that that do. And for those people, they want to be able to change their gender, well, want to change their birth certificate as soon as they possibly can. And I mean, let's face it, um, people who, when they go out drinking, okay, you can't drink at 16, (laughs) is one of those forms of identity that you um, use to actually show your age, isn't it? And so... Some of this about the current system that's been particularly difficult is that it goes to a tribunal, essentially, that you never meet, totally faceless, that decides the fate of people they never meet and will never go on to meet. And then whatever happen, whatever they decide, you have no right to appeal. And I, 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 well, I'm going to go into a difficult area here because it is good practice and LGBT Labour's policy, of which you're obviously the trans officer, to not ask people about whether they've gone through this process um, of having a gender recognition certificate because people should be able to go for that. You, you've agreed to talk to us about the experience that, that you have to help kind of campaign on, on this issue. So can you can you tell us a little bit what that was like, putting your fate in the hands of people yes, I assume so- you've never met? I, well, I certainly hadn't met. And I mean, the, the forms themselves were very complicated. So, I mean, I've got a PhD and I really needed it to actually understand every, <laughs> every particular I thing. I hate literally nothing more than filling out forms. Like <laughs> yeah. I basically come out in hives. Yes. <laughs> the dyslexia well, within me means that literally I have to do them about 10 times. Yes. Uh, I mean, and this would certainly bring you out in hives. It's uh, It was complicated enough 
in the first place. And of course, you had to then put lots of painful medical details in and uh, other other bits of proof to show that uh, you had transitioned. Now, one of the things they ask for is when you have switched your name, uh, if you've changed it by deed poll, they want to see the original deed poll. Now, I had changed my name some 20 years before with the deed poll, and I've got all my passports and everything else in, in my new name. Uh, I'd been... Uh, homeless uh, and uh, sleeping in the, in the meantime. So I didn't have access to all those previous records. And they actually declined me for not actually having that deed poll form, even though, as I said, I'd, I'd proved to everyone, you know, in terms of uh, showing the uh, passport and everything else, that, that was the name I was using. Uh, and I wasn't allowed to have a gender recognition certificate. And it took a very long time. Uh, and lots of battles to actually reapply and 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 overcome that. Um, How did that make you feel? Well, very disappointed uh, because I mean, well, yeah, it, it it costs a lot in the first place. It was quite emotionally uh, draining as well, just because actually facing anything which reminds you about um, your, should we say. Um, that reminds me you about your past and uh, some of the difficulties you might have had uh, just facing the world as, as a transgender person was difficult. And then I've got to go through it all over again. And uh, it's almost like someone says, oh, well, you're not really transgender. So it's like, uh, and, you know, you haven't met, not being able to appeal. In fact, they are technically wrong about um, the, the need for a deed poll because one of the other things that the uh, Equality Committee has actually said is that actually legal names, you can actually just call yourself what you want. Okay, You don't actually have to go through a deed poll. Um, and uh, certainly this is a bureaucratic uh, hurdle too far to actually insist on, on, on actually seeing the original uh, change of name. So let's try and move to what's being campaigned for. So um, I believe LGBT Labour, which obviously you're the trans officer campaign, you speak for every trans person in the country <laughs> and what they're arguing for. But there is some consensus around what I believe is kind of viewed as the kind of Irish model. So the Republic of Ireland um, in 2015, uh, 15, I, think. Um, I believe, uh, passed legislation allowing people to to have a, a gender recognition certificate based on self-definition as the proposing system. So this has been chosen partly because we have similar legal systems. It allows people to change their gender through this self-determination uh, mechanism. Explain a little bit how that works and what you therefore go through. Instead of a medicalised process, what so, then happens? So basically that, that would involve you applying for a form. Um, so I'm Fortunately, still more forms with still more hives, but a lot, more, yes, a lot more simple. Uh, and that form would basically say that you intend to live uh, in your uh, gender that you're expressing for the rest of your life. And then uh, you declare something called a statutory declaration to saying, I will live in that gender for the rest of my life. And this actually is quite a powerful form. It's not something trivial to just sign off on because if you actually falsely give uh, a, a declaration, a statutory declaration, you can find yourself imprisoned for up to two years. Okay. So it's actually sort of like... Under the people, Perjury Act. Perjury. Uh, under the Perjury Act, yes. Yep. So actually when people say, oh, well, it's as simple as, you know, people just do it frivolously, et cetera, that, they wouldn't um, because they, they would get into a lot of trouble if they did. Uh, and then uh, that would go off uh, and uh, you'd hopefully be uh, issued uh, your gender recognition certificates and uh, all the privacy and everything else that would come with that. And so the, the privacy part of that in the Irish model is is a lot stronger, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's one of the things that's very good about it. Yes, yes. I mean, I can't, I'm not an expert on uh, Irish law, but uh, yes, I mean, that, that that's part of the idea of updating it and uh, for MPs and the, uh, you know, and lords to actually work out the best way of actually protecting people's privacy. And, and I believe that one of the things is that they have brought down the age uh, for about to apply for it. You, at 16, you can apply to a judge to ask for the kind of permission to go through the process. Yes, I mean, that, that uh, again, is a, is a sensible uh, way of saying, look, people can determine, you know, how they think at the age of 16, etc. But let's just have, uh, in, in Ireland, it was thought, just have an extra hurdle to overcome, just to check, you know, that everything is all in place. But I think it's pretty much automatic, unless if there is a reason why yep. you'd say, oh, someone can't really determine for themselves at that particular age. Um, 
why they should actually have change the agenda. The other, the other opportunity to reform is to get rid of something known as the spousal veto. So do you want to explain that to people, yes. what that is and where that comes from? So before the Equal Marriage Act, it might cause a problem if suddenly sort of like someone swaps, changes their gender and, and in relation to their current marriage. So what the original act uh, said was, uh, okay, well, you'd need the permission of your current spouse to actually change your, your gender. Uh, and that was called the uh, spousal veto. And you'd either have to get divorced or there would be a long process in which um, that was then disputed if your partner uh, refused to give it. And the trouble is that's then been used in ways of messy divorces, sort of like saying, well, I only sign off your, I only give you the spousal permission if you actually agree to my terms on, on the divorce. And it, again, it sort of like puts people in a legal limbo for an extra six six months they don't, don't need to have. So yes, the idea is to uh, get rid of the spousal veto. And so the change that we're talking about moving to self-declaration declaration has been done in Argentina in 2012, in Denmark in 2014. We've talked about Ireland already in 2015, but also done in Malta, Norway and Colombia. Um, And there seems to be no reports there of people kind of gaming the system, all this kind of hysteria that's out there that people are going to do it as a one-off. When they go into prison, they'll then declare they can be in another prison, they're going to abuse people or this horrendous stuff where people are going to voluntarily do it so they can turn up at women's refuge to find their former partner. This hasn't been experienced in any of the jurisdictions it's not been found in any other jurisdiction and i think this is actually one of the confusions all those things about uh, access to women's prisons uh, and uh, refuges etc they all come under the equality act which is actually completely separate to what's actually being uh, proposed to be changed so actually the gender recognition act gives you uh, if you change your birth certificate it gives you no extra rights to actually have extra rights in the Equality Act. Okay, the Equality Act allows uh, for certain exceptions if it's uh, proportionate to a legitimate aim. So there are bodies could choose to say, look, this is a reason why we need to exclude a transgender person and then exclude them because they say, well, that, that that's legitimate. But actually what we even find on those particular cases is it doesn't happen. Uh, yes, women, so this is yeah. much reported about on Twitter and the, for instance, is the whataboutery. Yeah. But if you speak to Women's Aid or the various organisations that run domestic violence services, they've thought this stuff through. They've had many of these issues. There are sometimes separate beds available for trans people, I believe. Um, but also they haven't actually come up against yeah. the, the sense of abuse that people argue that they fear in some of our newspapers. Yes, and uh, Scotland, which has actually undergone a uh, consultation process already, all those uh, services, the uh, women's domestic refuge services and uh, rape crisis services have all come out supporting the need to change the Gender Recognition Act and saying we've never had any particular, we've never had problems in terms of our services on the Equality Act, which is completely separate. That's really welcome and really and positive to see going forward. And one of the sad things about this debate is it was kicked off by this report led by a Tory. The government then said they would try and take this forward when Justin Greeding was the Equalities uh, Minister and the Education Secretary. And for whatever reason, she could never quite get around to doing it, which did seem to be from the outside to look about as much about her colleagues than her own intentions, to be fair to her. And now she's left government, it slightly seems to have died... Yeah, so, a, and so I mean, it was announced just before the summer um, recess that, that there would be this consultation and then change uh, of the Gender Recognition Act to self-declaration. And they said the consultation would be in the autumn and then sort of like it's being kicked ever back, sort back, of like back, back. And, you know, it's always, oh, well, it'll be sometime next month. That's been the constant. But uh, to be fair to them, the SNP government have done yes. their own inquiry and it's come to very similar, their own consultation, sorry, yes. and it's come to similar conclusions. I think it's important at this stage to mention non-binary because the current Gender Recognition Act doesn't really give provision for non-binary people but there have been pioneers around the world Malta and Argentina that have been previously mentioned uh, New South Wales the state in Australia Oregon and California the states in the USA have allowed provisions for non-binary people to be legally recognized do you think that's something we need to try and explore as part of this I, th- I think we do I mean uh, at the moment there is a legal case going about uh, through the courts about whether someone can have their passports instead of having M or F, male and female, whether they can have X. 
And as you say, in Australia, for example, you're allowed to do that. And actually that, that applies worldwide because I think it's the Civil Aviation Authority of um, the worldwide body of that actually says that's quite a valid uh, thing not to actually have a gender marker or to have a neutral gender marker on your your form so if oh, you yeah, I suppose do... if one country's done it then everywhere's done it because there is a central body that that's... processes your passport when you go through customs that, so okay that that's right so i mean and if that if that comes becomes the case in terms of you can change your passport uh to, to be registered as X. Why not, as we said before, sort of like you, you'll find that there's loads of problems with your insurance and everything else. You should be able to uh, change your birth certificate and have your non-binary gender recognised. But it is controversial because the, the tone of the debate has been so poor because of this Twitter debate where people haven't been rationally talking about, I mean, very few people know what non-binary is. And, you know, they then sort of like will sort of like say their worst fear, this is a person that might be non-binary and we're going to pretend everyone is like that particular person. Uh, we're not having a rational debate. Um, yeah. So we're not seeking to speak for all non-binary people. Do you want to give a sense of definition for those people who've not come across that previously? Uh, yes. Okay. So my normal job is as a scientist and I like putting things in boxes. because. <laughs> uh, so we're probably all happy to stick things into a male or female box. But actually, you know, that that is uh, oversimplification. Uh, 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 yeah, oversimplification. And some people would say, look, being male doesn't entirely... Uh, suit my you know model of myself being female doesn't entirely suit my model of myself or I might be both so there's a so non-binary as a general umbrella term is anything that doesn't fit the binary <laughs> yeah so I mean it's it, the clues in its name so anything that sort of like doesn't fit these two boxes yeah no absolutely and I think I think one of the things I really wanted to come back to that that Heather mentioned before was about that kind of tone of the debate and I came into politics through my feminism. Um, that was totally what brought me in. Um, and it was it was through that that I had the confidence to kind of come out as a lesbian. So, you know, lots of part of my identity comes from my kind of feminism before it comes from anything else. And I think the tone of the debate on kind of every side has become so extreme and so entrenched in some of the most damaging ways that, you know, there are, it's one of those things where, it's also, it kind of highlights sometimes how people's rights can conflict at times. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to acknowledge and understand, but it's also true. And I think one of the things that I think I've seen, particularly within the labour movement that, that I think has been really positive, is the kind of discussions that LGBT labour uh, and certain women's groups, so like Fabian Women's Network, LWN, like there's been a really good sense of engagement about right, what are the actual issues? What could be the situations where this could have a have a level of confliction? And how do we sort that stuff out? You know, as you say, and it's about what's the true fact in all of this? Like how, what's, what's actually being asked to be proposed and changed and not what's the scandal and the headline and the extremities on all sides that people come up with? Well, so let's get into some of this debate. So the Parliamentary Committee looks into the decision, says there should be change, and there was a backlash, let's be honest. And one of the things that you expected the Express, the Mail, the Sun maybe, to take sometimes the traditional position that those papers have taken and certainly one that many gay men in particular will recognise as the kind of headlines that were used against them in the 80s and 90s, particularly around HIV crisis as it was then, uh, and you're seeing that. But one of the things that I think has saddened me most is the way the Sunday Times has been yeah. almost the cheerleader for some of this. I know, Steph, you've identified some of the vile headlines that came yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've, you know, even this is literally just over the last kind of couple of months, you've got terrified patient, uh, patient treated like transphobic bigot. A woman claims a hospital puts the right of male bodied fellow patient first. And it's, uh, you've got another one up to half of trans inmates, maybe sex offenders. And it's just like, yeah. So, so I mean that that one in particular is so. I mean, this is it's Andrew Gilligan who uh, doesn't have the. Uh, uh, I, th I think that's by Andrew. Uh, and it's literally it's got it's got a little headline, a little subheadline: transgender investigation. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, so for example, okay, that where that ca came from was this. Um, so, uh, trans prisoners are often vulnerable to assaults, uh, sexual assaults in in prison. So they often go into areas which are protected. 
and also in those protected areas happen to be uh, sex offenders occasionally. So the the conclusion was, oh, anyone who's in the sex offender... Two and two must equal yes, seven. that's it. Anyone in that particular... How helpful. That's yeah. not journalism, people. Yeah. I no. expect better. Um, I, expect, so, I do expect better from the Sunday Times, yeah. is the honest yeah. truth. I yeah. do expect yeah. better from the Sunday Times. Yeah. And, and I mean, and those sort of like fear, sort of like uh, stories are put around. I mean, you know, and it used to be the case that lots of people would uh, who are transgender would be labelled as paedophiles and then... Well, gay this, people used yeah. to be labelled as paedophiles. Well, like, you precisely. Know, we so were, it's, it's that particular sort of like notion of... Let's find a reason why other people should hate yeah. this minority uh, because we've got to feel justif that you know we've got to have a justification for hating people. Yeah, and, and um, I've got a brilliant briefing from Unison, the trade union that's obviously Labour affiliated, that's looked into some of these issues, and they go through whole areas where myths have come about, and makes very clear the GRA reform does not affect hate crime law, for example, which some people are trying to suggest yes. that, that it would. It does not affect the Equality Act. That is a totally different bit of. Discrimination. Nobody is trying to change the protections or exemptions that exist for trans people or or, or for other groups um, in that. It does not affect uh, sports competitions. It doesn't affect how the NHS might work or its medical treatments. It doesn't affect who might go into what changing rooms in Top Man or Top Shop or whatever the place might be. It doesn't affect whole areas that people seem to have got into, particularly single-sex services and facilities. Those rules will be maintained because the rule, the law is seen as fair. At the moment, the exemptions uh, seem to work and, and they've not identified any problems. And it doesn't allow people to flip-flop their genders. I think you explained earlier how this isn't people willy-nilly. Is that the right? <laughs> probably not yeah. the right thing to say on this. Um, <laughs> You know, to, to just change, they're not going back and forward, flip flopping in this way. You have to make a kind of serious affidavit, yes, to to go through this process. And as we say, sort of like going back to the international uh, examples where this has happened in Ireland, Argentina, etc. There've been no examples where this system has been abused. And the, uh, you know, going back, it is a separate act, the Equalities Act. It allows certain exceptions. But as I also say, it's sort of like uh, it's very rare that those exceptions are ever necessary. A lot of yeah. fear out there is actually not what the practice is on the ground because actually people are quite reasonable. So finally, I want to turn to the situation in the Labour Party because this, of course, is a debate in society and that's reflected in the Labour Party. But particularly, and it's been argued that the presence of all women shortlists has heightened this recently. And actually, one of the very progressive things that Labour did when it brought in all women shortlists was it said from the very outset that they will take that base on self-definition. But some people put their size 10s into the debate unhelpfully and suggested that wasn't the case. But recently, I think, Stephanie, you were even there. Yes, uh, yeah, I was. Party. Yeah, so I was at the NEC Qualities uh, Subcommittee, um, so I do that in one of my other hats. Um, also on LGBT Labour's executive, and basically because of the kind of discussion that had come out and the kind of blow up that people have had with regards to self definition, we wanted to make it very, very clear that that had always been the case. That nothing is new here. Like, and and the point of it being that nothing is new here is we haven't had any problem before. So all again, the scaremongering, the what aboutery, like. None of these things had happened before. Why should they therefore start to happen now? Um, and what was really positive at the NEC Equality Subcommittee was um, you saw kind of unanimously this reaffirming and clarifying statement um, at the last meeting that was passed um, that was then to be taken to the NEC. It's done a little bit of backwards and forwards over the last couple of months of just making sure the wording of these things is right and, and everything else. But it was passed kind of, you know, very, very unanimously. And nothing passes unanimously in the current Literally, party. nothing passes <laughs> unanimously. But, you know, from yeah. every side and every bit of the kind of political spectrum that sits within the Labour Party, it was a really positive thing where everybody around the room just went, yep, no, I totally agree. This is really important. One of the things that I think is actually quite sad is it then goes back up to the NEC. It's getting postponed again. There's more discussion that needs to happen. And then we're seeing, you know, kind of people that have made some very offensive and hurtful statements to the trans community being invited in to consult on these issues. And actually, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity around what's going on at the moment. There's not a lot of clarity of what's going on about that at the moment. But what I think we really need to see very, very quickly from the Labour Party is a reaffirming of this uh, for the trans community within Labour um, and also kind of action taken in terms of putting out this statement and making it very, very clear. 
And, you know, as the party have said before, there are already safeguards to protect people that would abuse it. And actually, more people would try and abuse it to undermine the concept of all women shortlists yeah. in a sense that they don't believe that they should exist in the first place than would anything to do with the trans community or anything like that. So, yeah, what we need right now is, is action from the Labour Party. Yeah, and I, I'd say it's been very disappointing because by keep postponing it, um, there is this uh, Twitter backlash against the trans community. Yeah. Whilst it they looks think like that, there's something that, yes. wrong. And whilst, they, whilst these uh, people think that they can influence policy by shouting loudly about the trans community, they shout loudly about the trans community. So we've, we've simply postponed uh, actually what is going to be Labour Party policy because that we are the party of equality. Um, and it is always actually well, we been... Need to we, yeah, we need to, well, we are, policy, but yeah. we need to prove that. And I yeah, think that's the important thing right now is that... And the bit that you just said there, which is interesting, is we're kind of holding open the window yeah. for discrimination. Absolutely. While we don't get this yeah. clarified. Because if it's been the case since 1993... Yeah. yeah. Well, what we're saying and, is, yeah. what we're saying is that there is, a, there is a reason to debate this and there is problems within this situation. That's what we're saying. But that wasn't the NEC subcommittee's that view. That wasn't the NEC subcommittee's that's view at all. That is, the any, that is the main body of the NEC's view. Yeah. So. And perhaps we should just have a look at an example. Because in the year 2000 I got elected as a woman's officer in Pembroke College um, in Cambridge there was never any sort of like there wasn't even Daily Mail headlines about that suddenly we have because of this uh, debate within the Labour Party supposed debate Lily Madigan who becomes woman's officer in her CLP there's some really vicious horrible things being said about Lily Madigan who i think it's quite well known is open about being trans that's just not acceptable but that's happening from people within the Labour Party who are some of them are still within the Labour Party and not being suspended or anything throwing vile abuse on online yeah and the transgender community feels under attack and uh, bit like anti-Semitism, we feel that the Labour Party is not acting quickly enough when they're given evidence of someone being really abusive. They're not at least suspending them whilst they investigate further. And what form has that abuse taken? What have you seen on social media? There's a great deal of uh, dead naming of people. So uh, this this is whereby someone's original name is actually said and any photos that might have been of them before they transitioned have been put out. There's a lot of uh, modifications of photographs of people where they then put offensive comments up about, sort of like, this is what a misogynist looks like over a picture of Eddie Izzard or myself, etc. Um, so, and those are things that have been published. And of course, they're memes that get shared around uh, on the Twitter. And then, you know, uh, people like myself have found that uh, our there have been attempts to out our original birth certificates and other things that are then put on the net, such as my dress and everything. And then people, I find myself subject to, to identity fraud because all of the these details, which, uh, you know, oh people... Oh, my God, can, how horrid. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's been a quite a quite a nightmare. And, I mean, just in terms of, you know, I, I stood on an all-women's shortlist and the people within the constituency that I had to, uh, which I was trying to uh, be selected for, they were fine. They were all mm. supportive. But there was a sort of like a Twitter storm and an email storm being sent sort of like uh, to me. Literally, my whole inbox was always full each day with sort of like abusive comments. And then, of course, I've got the difficulty of filtering out those abusive comments and actually dealing with constituents' comments. Yeah. So, you know, those are our current difficulties and we don't seem to be able to tackle it within the Labour Party at the moment, sadly. Well, thank you very much, Heather, for being part of what has been a fascinating and I think wide-ranging conversation on the issue. I think we're all with you on getting the real changes to the law that are very necessary for the Gender Recognition Act to be able to function in a, a modern situation and to follow the best practice that is there in Ireland. Maybe had we not had a Tory government, we would have been leading the way on this um, initially. Certainly. So thank you for talking to us about that, Heather, and good luck with your NEC election and your campaigning in the coming days for that election. Wider LGBT issues have been in the press in the last few weeks because of the Commonwealth meeting and, of course, Tom Daly's success in the Commonwealth competition that he was part of, where, of course, he won gold for Britain. And he used the opportunity of competing as an openly LGBT diver and the fact that him and his partner are about to have a child and bring a baby into this world and become parents together that I think lots of people have become very happy about. I certainly smiled a lot when I heard the news and was very, very pleased for them. And he conflated those two things and 
reflected back what that experience might be to not be an openly LGBT participant in the Commonwealth Games going forward. And Theresa May, of course, apologised for Britain being the people that put these anti-LGBT legislation in a number of countries around the world and has essentially offered a hand of friendship for those who seek to change the laws on that. Absolutely. Um, This is where uh, we had a fun bit of controversy in the office earlier where we were discussing this because I love Tom Daly, probably not as much as the next gay man, but I love him. You He's don't a good love lad. him that much, not enough. I do. However, and I think his intentions are so good. Like, I think they come from literally the best place in terms of where he's coming from, in terms of his intervention on this. But I don't actually think it's very helpful. And there are a number of reasons that I don't actually think it's very helpful for. And I think, firstly, as you say, and you said very quickly, you need to remember the context of which these laws were made in. They were not, you know, just made at the point where this was just the history. This is what always thought. Like we imposed as a colony, when we colonised these countries, we imposed the penal codes that made this illegal as a country. Like we created it. Tom Daly did, didn't. Tom, da- yes. But listen to the whole point of it. I'm not saying Tom Daly made them, but we are a we are the UK. Theresa May is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and she is reaching out her little olive branch, despite the fact about what 15 years ago she used to vote against us all the time anyway. So, but. There is a difference between the fact of what's going to be the right tactic to do this, right? I personally think lots of this comes down to a bit of virtue signaling because I think it makes us feel really good. I think it makes us instinctively feel like it's the right thing to do. But actually, I think on the ground, in the countries where these where these laws still exist because we put them there, um, but where now the attitude of homophobia is so deep-rooted, but also with the attitude in lots of ways of anti-colonial attitude of we have fought so hard for our independence from this. Um, there's a difference between part of the Commonwealth Games and playing sport and being part of the Commonwealth Games and, and the legislation that goes with that. And I think for me, what's really important is that we need to be working with the LGBT people in those communities and in those countries and doing it very loudly and publicly. And as quite honestly, as Tom Daly, uh, Theresa May, as, as white British people saying that this is what we should be doing actually isn't very helpful because it's seen as a very Western way of looking at things when actually there are phenomenal LGBT like movements that are happening in those countries. And what we need to be doing is quite quietly and it's difficult because we like to say things very loudly and proudly as a community in lots of ways. But actually, like we need to be working with the people that are LGBT within those countries that are doing the most amazing fights and campaigns to be able to make change the culture of their countries from within and not see this as a kind of virtue signaling way of doing things before controversial he- alarm, before I know. rushes in I, I just want to but, look i think many of us agree with the sensitivities that you have put forward but i would maybe argue this has tom daly not been the platform for some of those domestic LGBT groups to have the issues raised higher up the agenda and them to get their issues raised in a way that moves things forward. And also, has Tom Daly not shown some solidarity with those people that the struggle that you're far part of is worth it, that it can get better and it will get better, that other people are wishing you well in that fight? Because that is one of the things that if you are fighting for equality in a place where you're, you don't have the direction of travel with you, knowing that other people in other places you might never have met are wishing you well in that fight can sometimes be the bit that keeps you going. I think that's true. I'm not sure necessarily that everybody that is fighting this fight will necessarily know who Tom Daly is. Like, <gasps> I know the concept of that to you, Richard, blows your mind. But you have to remember where it is that we're talking about in lots of these places, the culture that sits within those. Um, and I think as much as, this is what I mean, Like, I think all of this is good intention. Do I think practically it's what's going to change anything? No. Yeah, but the uh, key issue about raising it about the Commonwealth and in the Commonwealth Games is sometimes you can't work with the LGBT communities in those uh, particular countries because it is illegal or those people face serious actual action, uh, you know, violent action against them. So I think, you know, there is a particular point of actually all all governments, I mean, the British government, but also European governments, etc., saying, look, rights across the world need to improve. I will just say this, we should lead by example. And one of the troubles with this government is their asylum policy. 
and particularly for the bisexual and transgender community, people who are claiming asylum, who are bisexual or transgender and have been discriminated against in their country and face a serious consequence, they often find that they can't claim asylum. Well, exactly. Um, there, are, there are lesbian women who are told, well, you've had a child before, so you can't be a lesbian because at some point you've had a child. Yeah. So when Theresa May cleans up her own acts, she can take a little hypocrisy elsewhere personally. But, yes, uh, well, I, I, I she think she should do it in parallel. LGBT just miss Steph Lloyd dropping the mic yes. Literally, <laughs> while she deports LGBT people because they can't prove that they are gay, and this was while she was in the Home Office and everything else, like, I'm sorry, Theresa, but nah, you, I don't think you're going to change the world on LGBT rights somehow. I was arguing Tom Daly was, not Theresa May, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I think we all, all, all see that going forward. Very final thing is... How do we be better allies in this debate? So trans people feel like they're under attack. I think that's something that you just said. What can we all do to be better allies? Yeah, so I think if you see transphobia, um, either when trans people are present or when they're absent, um, you should call it out and uh, make sure that people know it's not acceptable. Uh, correct any misinformation if you can. So that's one of the reasons why uh, the Labour Party is putting up a trans ally uh, network information and so is uh, uh we'll Unis link to that in the show yes. notes so people yes. can sign and, up to it and so is unison which is uh, a bit more advanced on that than we, we've got so far so actually con uh, contradict a lot of these myths and these falsities and but it's transphobia whether there's a trans person in the room or not they doesn't mm -hmm. have yes. to be there to be offended mm -hmm. for it to be transphobia and it's like on the anti-semitism issue if you hear transphobia it's for you to say hold on, that's offensive. I don't want that being said in my presence. That's not welcome in our club rules. Very much so. And I think the other other thing is, if, if you know a trans person who's coming out at work, etc., is to be supportive and understand that, um, I was saying to someone earlier, sort of like uh, when I first transitioned, okay, I'd not made all the teenage fashion mistakes uh, that <laughs> my colleagues had made. And I suddenly made those over a two-year period. Uh, um, and it was uh, it was quite embarrassing. But so it would be... I've be, got haircuts. Yeah that need to resign themselves to the bin forever. <laughs> this is the trouble with the internet. It records everything. So, um, so I mean, so I think the, the, the point is just be supportive of people who are trans and, as you say, call out transphobia. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us to be part of this debate. I think we've covered a whole range of issues there. We wish you well and we'll be at your side and supporting you as both progress and I'm sure through LGBT Labour to campaign for this very necessary change in the law and to try and fight back in some of the public space where people are trying to muddy the water or just be downright hateful. Um, we encourage people to join the LGBT Labour Trans Ally Network and like, like Steph said, there'll be a link below. But thank you very much for being part of this discussion. So every week, Connor asks his political pub quiz question, and it's answered on the Friday Review Show. Connor's on holiday still, and he's not with us this week. So Steph, what's your question this week? The question is, which US president refused to use a telephone in the White House? Ooh, I have no idea. But if you know, send your answers to at Progress Online on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk with a chance to win, you guessed it, a Progress mug. Uh, we've got to wrap up the show now. Um, we've been delighted to have Heather Pito on with us this week. Please send your questions, comments and suggestions for our follow-up show by Twitter, email or put your review on iTunes. If you leave an iTunes review, it helps us get up the iTunes charts and gets this podcast to people who don't already hear it. If you rate the podcast, it does the same. And of course, if you subscribe to the podcast, it means it comes to your phone at 6am in the morning, every Tuesday and Friday when we go live. So thank you very much for your support and thank you for listening. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast mm -hmm.